Objectification requires you hate yourself. All of us experience moments of unworthiness, feeling like we're not good enough. If people really knew who we were, they would reject us. Some of us experience that more frequently than others. I believe this is objectification. You can interchange the words domestication and objectification. Most of us were born into families that had an idea of who their children would become. That's objectification. So who you actually are was rejected. You learn to reject yourself. To be a good object, to be a good domesticated human, you have to fall in line. The way ego development happens in our current culture It has a lot to do with the way we're domesticated, the way we're objectified. For most of us, there is a level of emotional trauma as we move through our ego development. It's when we really become aware that there may be something wrong with us, that maybe we're not good enough the way we are, that maybe if we were better, X, Y, or Z wouldn't be happening in our lives. And so we put that burden on our small shoulders and we carry that throughout our life. Most of us are still carrying this as adults. It's understanding that your self-rejection is objectification. If you were yourself an animal in an ecosystem, There's purpose in that. There's something here for you. You get to be. But that is not our current experience. We, most of us, are a cog in a wheel to keep our capitalistic society moving forward. Some of us feel like we're thriving in that. A lot of us feel like we're not. We focus on surface experiences to find a sense of worth. I believe that most of us can compartmentalize our experiences. We can be perfect objects in one moment and feel very satisfied in that experience. But there's always a fallout, the coming down from that heightened state of being a perfect object. It's the part of yourself that wants you to come back home to yourself. We can never fully move away from that place. It would be impossible to not be ourselves. So we can move in this direction of being this perfect object, but we will always find the part of ourselves that needs to be held and loved and reclaimed to be released from objectification. Welcome to the Lady Voice Podcast, Dismantle the Patriarchy in Your Mind, with Danielle and Jenny. When you just said that, like, hate, like, objectification requires you to hate yourself. Like, my son, 
says all the time. He just said this morning, I was holding this mug that has his picture on it from school and he hates it. He hates pictures of himself. He says, because mom, I don't like myself. I hate myself. He is such a wonderful human being. Like he has the sweetest, sweetest spirit and he's so empathetic and so loving, but he's treated like an object, like really, really intensely, a very close person, an adult in his life, you know? <laughs> and I just feel like that's a big part of it. God, I did, that's never, I may never have made that connection around like self-hatred being so connected to objectification. He always says, he always indicates like, mom, I'm failing you somehow, or I'm not doing this right, or I got in trouble. So I'm, I'm a total failure. It's really sad. You have to believe that there's something wrong with you to accept objectification. You have to reject who you are fundamentally to accept someone else's idea of who they think you should be. And it's through this act of objectification that we lose ourselves. Self-abuse arises out of objectification. An insecure attachment with life arises because of objectification. It's domestication, objectification. Everyone goes through it. Everyone has this. There's no way to avoid it. Most people I know have an insecure attachment. Like I, I don't know people who were raised with secure attachment. Objectification can start from day one in a person's life. There's so many stories. Like everyone's road through an insecure attachment, everyone's path through objectification is unique. There's like similar elements. Recognizing that if you are in any way judging yourself right now, if there's any part of you that is rejecting yourself, like it could be your body, it could be a personality quirk, any self-rejection is rooted in objectification, 100%. You have an idea of who you're supposed to be. It's this like alternate universe of the person you should have become. And that is an object of yourself. You believe yourself to be an object. I had this thing when I was like 18. I found myself fantasizing about like me in the next year or two and like what I would look like, which is so weird because it's like, you're going to look exactly like yourself, right? But like, I even saw myself looking differently. I saw myself behaving differently. I saw myself in this like totally different life and it was like sterile, but there was no stress in that life. Looking at it, I was like this perfect female. Uh, it's interesting to me looking back, like for me, believing that if I became this perfect looking female, this perfect acting female, like that my life wouldn't have problems. And so I was really like clinging to this idea. And it's almost like body dysmorphia. I had this awareness that like for me to achieve that, there would probably need to be cosmetic procedures, which is even weirder. It's like, just. Yeah. But it was just like casual. It was, I'm like, that's just where I would go. It wasn't like someone telling me I needed to look a certain way. It was just how I envisioned my life improving. It was like, I changed how I looked. I changed this external thing. And then it was like, well, I would then find the people that could love me. I would then have the life 
lifestyle that I wanted, you know, the money that I was looking to have, like whatever it was. I ended up talking to a modeling scout. At the time, you know, I had just shot up. I was like pretty tall, but very like thin. I hadn't filled out at all. I was just a baby. I look at people that age and I'm like, wow, you're just like such a little baby. And uh, this guy was really subtly manipulative. And I felt weird in the conversation. I was alone. I didn't have an adult with me, someone to help me navigate the situation. And he was using like the word athletic, like I was too athletic. Oh my God. And I was like, okay, (laughs) I don't even know what that means, but. With your athletic build, you could um, do catalog work. But if you stopped looking so athletic, you could do runway. That's what he told Oh, my God. Yeah. So he's like saying all of these things. And I start having an anxiety attack in his office. Like I'm just shutting down. So basically, he's like to lose your athletic body, you know, maybe you need to think about what you're eating. Where I parked, there was a Wendy's like across the street. And I was like, <laughs> with Wendy's at that time, like I lived off of Wendy's, their dollar menu. So I'm like sitting there staring at Wendy's and I'm like, what is he saying? And mind you, I have the fantasy of what I'm supposed to become to solve my problems. And this guy's like, basically, yes, that fantasy you have of yourself. If you pursue that, there is the pot of gold on the other side of that. So you could totally modify everything about you and you will get financially rewarded. And I'm just sitting in my car, like destitute, totally alone in the world. I have no adult support at all in my life. And I'm just like, Ooh, like I really want money. (laughs) I really want that money. And I also really want Wendy's. And I'm like, (laughs) I feel like maybe this is when my prefrontal cortex really like lit up. If I choose Wendy's, I choose the unknown. <laughs> like if I choose Wendy's, there is no money on the other side of that. Like uh, <laughs> <laughs> Wendy's is one of the options. <laughs> if I choose to not eat Wendy's right now, I am going into the black hole of myself because I was already on the abyss. Like I knew that in myself. Like I knew I was on the edge of like just total self-destruction and I was like teetering. Another intense car moment. These moments seem to happen to me in the car all the time. I'm like, what do I choose? I chose a triple cheeseburger. I was like, fuck it, dude. I I might be poor (laughs) for the rest of my life, but I will eat well at Wendy's. This is awesome. I love that story. (laughs) That's when I stopped choosing the path of objectification. Once I made that choice, it was a trickle down effect moving forward. It became easier and easier to stop choosing the things that objectified me, the people who objectified me. Like I could just keep walking this path into myself. And it's literally that moment that was the, the starting point. Where I think a lot of us get stuck is that feeling of the unknown is really, that's really scary to not know, to not know what, what's out there for you. The unknown versus the black hole. <laughs> it's like, it doesn't feel like options that energize you or make you excited in either direction. It's hard to choose the unknown. It really is. 
it's weird because um like just even telling the story it's like a weird story because I'm tall I have the ability to make a lot of money if I'm willing to exploit myself if I was five inches shorter this wouldn't even be an option this wouldn't have been a conversation to have just that alone is bizarre to me like this isn't about me can I be like essentially a walking mannequin and if I starve myself well enough the clothes will hang on me in such a way that it will showcase the fabric like it's fucking weird what is that but you're fucking rewarded for that and it's like super abusive it's and if you can't if you're not that body type you're pun- like there's mental punishment, right? Like you can't objectify yourself in that way. There's something wrong with you. If you can objectify yourself in that way, then there's something wrong with you. It's this no win situation. And again, like if you're not hating your body good enough, you're not being a good enough object. Like objectification requires that you hate your body. So even if you got that model job you would have to hate your body to maintain that job like there's just no winning like you can't win we have so many subcultures within our culture that make a ton of money off of you hating yourself the clothing industry requires that you hate your body the diet industry requires that you hate your body the workout industry (laughs) requires that you hate your body the self-help industry, people are like, I have a program and an app. I was just advertised like, are you even really a coach if you don't have an app? <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know, I guess. <laughs> Good question. The self-help part of it. <laughs> people are objects of the helpers. They're the helper objects and they will help you. They definitely deserve money. Yeah, we all have to make money. I hate this conversation. People have like one light bulb idea and they're like, I could definitely make an app out of that. And I could definitely get people to pay me for that. Instead of being like, was that light bulb moment something for you to turn back into yourself with? Like, can you just come back to yourself? Does it have to be about like, I solved this thing. Now I'll make yeah. money off of it. Everything's so exploitive. It's fucking weird. It's like really weird. Humans, I just want to be a farmer. Okay. I just want to dig in the dirt. I know. I was going to say, I don't know that we can actually escape it living in the context we live in because it's always going to be the battle of like, what do you enjoy doing every day? And can you monetize that? Or can you separate out that monetization of your life entirely from what you enjoy? And I think that, you know, that's what I was fed through all of my school years. And in my first 30 years of life was just like, find the thing you love, blah, 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 monetize that thing, you know? And then like when I had to figure out money actually for myself, because what I was doing didn't make money before, it was something that I didn't care about very much. And I actually like that better. I like that. I like that I have the separation of like, well, better is not the word. I'm like that I'm having that experience of separating who I am and what I enjoy and what I like from how I make money. How we make money is always going to ask us to objectify ourselves. Like there's no way around it. It's just like, what can you do to get money? That is objectification. (laughs) So like there's something like that helped me a lot separating like who I am from how I make money. It's been good to have an experience of making money that has nothing to do with anything I care about. That the things that I do that I love are just because I love them. Like if I'm doing yoga, I'm just doing yoga. I'm not like 
needing to pay my grocery bill, you know, so I'm going to teach an extra class and it's not going to be as good because I'm tired. But it's confusing because it's like, also on the other side, I'm doing something every day that I don't really care about. (laughs) You know, it's not my passion. (laughs) It's not my interest. You know, I'm just pumping the money line just like everyone else has to do in the world. I'm kind of bored. Like I'm understimulated also. And I think there's no real winning in any direction. So that gets back to your point about, I just want to be a farmer. Like (laughs) we could all just like self-sustain. I think that's the ideal, although it's not the world we live in currently. So for me, my career path has been the thing that we just talked about, like, oh, that solved a problem. I'm going to do that for a living. But it was never about other people. It's always about you. It was always about me. I'm like, oh, this thing tells me. I need to learn how to do this for me. If you study psychology, you can understand yourself. I wasn't like, I'm going to study psychology and then I'm going to fix other people. (laughs) I was like, wow, I can like resolve some of this you know, acupuncture. I'm like obsessed with acupuncture, but I'm not obsessed with acupuncture to make money off of it. I'm not obsessed to like go treat people. I just wanted to treat myself. Anything has just been about me. I just feel like now I'm like a self-sustained island. Like I could just go live on my farm somewhere (laughs) and not do anything. And ever again. The dream. That's the dream. dream. (laughs) (laughs) I don't need an app. I have a farm. I don't need an app. I have an acre and a half to grow some food on. Like what I found though, is as I was focusing on myself, the information I was finding helped other people. And I dislike immensely that our cultural approach to help is only money-based. Our whole democracy is founded on like our library system, the idea of free information. (laughs) That is why we are the democracy we are. I don't know what that even means anymore (laughs) most of the time. Information should be free. I really believe that. So we should just be talking about what we know. Like, why does it have to be structured in the way that it is? We all do need money to survive. That's like a duh thing to say I really am like someone's like but we I need money to survive yeah duh like duh duh how much do you fucking need to survive and like how much can you share like I have a certain level of expertise that when I'm working with someone one-on-one it's a little more intense I don't know but it's like I also don't need to like hoard that information from everybody and be like well if you want to talk about this it costs this much money That's weird to me. That's just, it's really weird. What if we gave everybody an opportunity (laughs) to problem solve themselves? Like what if we were sharing more information and then there's going to be people that don't get it and need your expertise. And then there's going to be people that do get it and don't need your expertise on a very personal level. Like I feel like self-help industry specifically because of like the line of work I'm in, even what this podcast is talking about. Every person who thinks they have a light bulb moment wants to become a guru. Every person wants to suddenly have all the power. And they're like, yeah, but it's like for love. It's for benefiting other people. Like other people will do really well in their life if they have this information. And of course they should just pay me for it because that's what we live, the world we live in, this capitalistic society. And it's just like, I hate that. (laughs) I hate it so much. Like I just don't care. It's like, this is not helpful. It's just not helpful. 
something I'm working on a lot with my son right now is like how to get through hard things in his life. He's got a lot going on emotionally. He's a really sensitive guy. And by sensitive, I don't mean sort of that standard, like, oh, this boy is sensitive. He's crying all the time. I mean, like, he's a sensitive, like, spirit. He can feel a lot of things and absorb a lot of things from all of the people around him. And he's got some dynamics in his life that are really, really hard on his system. And um, I was speaking with someone yesterday about it. And she was kind of talking about how important it is to help him understand how to move out of like out of victimhood and into like more of a survival and thrival state. (laughs) Just have been thinking about how to help him and support him through some of these hard things. And so today we had a moment of, um, we were playing catch with this ball and he threw the ball in a direction where I purposely couldn't catch it and ended up like way deep in in this corner, like under the bed. And he's got this little seven-year-old body who can like wiggle under a bed and grab it. He went for it and he was just like an inch or two away. And he was like, oh, mom, I can't do it. You know, oh, so hard, mom, you know? And I'm like, I just was like, I believe you are so much stronger than you realize. And he was like, well, mom, it's just hard to grab it. I said, no, I I don't just mean about the ball. I, I mean about like your whole life, like in a a lot of different ways. I think you're so, you have so much strength in you. And he had this like reactionary moment of like, what's my mom actually talking about here? You know, and he got kind of like huffy and like reactionary and kind of annoyed and irritable. And he sat down on the bed and was like huffing and puffing. And I was like, oh, are you upset with me? He's like, yeah, just go away, mom. (laughs) I was like, okay. I'll step away right now. You know, I'll give you some space. And so I went to the kitchen for a minute and he was quiet in the other room. And a couple minutes later, he said, okay, mom, I think something has changed for me. You know, and I went back in there and he was like crawling under the blankets and he was crying. He said, I moved from being angry to a whole different emotion, you know, and he's like teary. And I was like, oh, did you move from being, from feeling anger into feeling like your sadness or the thing that maybe hurt you. And so do you want to talk about that? He's like, he was like, yeah, I just, you know, I'm feeling sad about these couple of things, you know? And I was like, okay, yeah, I hear you, you know? And, (laughs) and he said, when you were gone, mom, I just sat on my bed and I just meditated. (laughs) I was like, oh, how'd that feel? He's like, good. It helped me get, get out of my anger. And then we just like, moved on, you know, in a really sweet way. And I don't know, it was just like the full circle of like human emotion from like anger to sadness back into connection and love and spaciousness and just felt like, oh, that's what we're here for. You know, that's Mm -hmm. what relationship is. And that's kind of what I want to help him with is to be able to like have all these experiences and know that he's still okay on the other side, that he's not become this object Um, that stops, you know, in a certain stage of that, where he's so stuck there, he can't get out and Mm -hmm. nothing can be done about it because that's sometimes how it feels is that we're just this object stuck in this place. We're terrible people. We're so pissed. We can't get out of that feeling. What a horrible thing. And this is who I am. And this is how I'm defined now. And I think just moving through all of that, my hope is like, he's 
going to learn that he's going to, he can be okay, that he has the resources to be okay in himself. I love that. I love him so much. I love that he is having this experience at this age. Cause what is life? Like we want it to be this thing. <laughs> we want it to be this like, I don't streamlined, like tidy experience that like we wake up in the morning, we go through this thing, we're happy, we go to sleep and we do it again. There's some adventures in there, just this clean, perfect life. And that's always the objectified view we have of what our life should be. And I think some people are really able to push that line in themselves. But I would just say like, what is being suppressed there? Like there's something being suppressed. My personal experience of life is uncertainty. <laughs> My baseline is stable and consistent. There is still a lot of uncertainty. I have uncertainty with like other people's experiences. I have uncertainty <laughs> just in general, like being human on the planet in the current circumstances. Like there's a level of uncertainty. I'm not like numb to that. and. We want to numb out to the uncertainty because it can be overwhelming. I think objectification adds an extra level of tension to all the uncertainty. If you remove that and you're just like, I'm a person with this person, how can I navigate this experience? It does get easier if you just stay in that space. Right now, one of my dependents is going through a really hard time and it's really overwhelming. This person chooses their outcome and this person doesn't have an operating prefrontal cortex. <laughs> so I'm like, you don't have higher thought. You're not dumb, but your higher thought has not like kicked in yet. And that's okay. So that is why you still need guidance. There is a reason why we have elders. Brain development is slow in humans. Like it takes us till we're 30 to be fully adult in our brain. We need guidance and we need blueprints. We are relying on industries that monetize that guidance and that isn't helpful. I feel like a lot of times really detrimental for a lot of us because it's like misinformation. There's so much misinformation with all of it. If you think about a narcissist, they give you a piece of truth with the gaslight. They're like, this is what's real. And you feel that as a person. You're like, yeah, that is real. And then they're like, so if that's real, this whole statement must be real. So therefore, you need to start thinking like me. And it's that like circle talk where this like kind of personality disorder. And honestly, it's like anyone with an unchecked mental health issue <laughs> that just wants to use it to like control people. They're like trying to lead you in a direction and like circle you over to their way of thinking because two individuals have two different thought processes. I'm talking to a minor and just because this person doesn't have a fully operating prefrontal cortex does not mean they don't have a sense of who they are and what they want to have happen in their life. This person knows who they are and they know where they want to go. What they don't understand is a bigger picture on how that can actually play out in the world. And that is where we need guidance. 
is that just what parenting is? It's like you're guiding someone who knows who they are and they actually know the outcome they want. They know, everyone knows the outcome they want. What if we just got out of that little bubble for them? And then we observed like, okay, this is who this person is. How can we guide them towards this big picture that they want? If you're objectifying your child, you're not doing that. Objectification is just so detrimental. I People just have an idea of who their kid's supposed to be based on who they are. No one is being helped by objectification. Yeah. Well, like something that's come up um, for us the last couple of weeks is, you know, my son has had a virus and uh, he's doing like a lot better this week, but he still isn't feeling like great. But he's also had a lot of emotional stuff going on, you know. Well, yesterday morning, he woke up after getting through half a week of going to school and he said, mom, yesterday, I feel like going to school made me feel even worse. He said, I don't want to go to school. My stomach hurts. I still have like, like, we still don't feel good. He's congested. You know, we make kids move forward anyway, because this is what they're supposed to do. This is like the thing we're supposed to do. Or like you have a job, (laughs) you know, I need to get to my job. So you need to toe the line too. you know, let's move this thing forward. Train can't stop it. And so it just like keeps on going. Like the objects keep on moving. We're objects, they're objects. I'm lucky I have a stay at home remote job right now. So I can say to him, okay, you know, you can stay home. Well, the same thing happened today. He's physically feeling quite a bit better. Emotionally, just like still, I can feel there's lagging. I'm so glad to give him the space to be a whole person and say like, I could use another day of rest, you know? And like, I didn't get that. I mean, my parents were like super loving, you know, and my mom stayed home with us. I was super lucky to have her home. But like, I don't think that emotional piece was ever tended to when it came to school. You know, it was like, oh, only if you have a fever or if you're barfing, you know, of course you would stay home. But like, when it came to like, what's your, how's your spirit? is your whole person being tended to right now? And do we need like a little bit more care? Like, I don't remember any of that. And then I discounted it in myself as an adult. Like that never occurred to me to actually like tend to that part of myself as an adult. Something that struck me before is how you talked about objectification, creating all this tension. And I felt that tension this week. Well, in his experience, like beyond the physical, you know, there's this tension with the world. And it's like, okay, what does it look like to give to give more space to this person so he's not feeling like an object who just needs to like get on the moving train? He just gets to not get on the train. Kind of like last week, our podcast about rest. Like instead of getting on that hamster wheel, what is it like to just like sit down, like not go anywhere, <laughs> you know, forward, back, anywhere, just like pause, just rest. It's like you unobjectify yourself in that choice right well i mean influenza a right that's what he had that's yeah gnarly virus <laughs> like day and nine now when, yeah when i get a virus i'm knocked down for two to three weeks energetically like i'm just like so tired so tired so something i've been reflecting on lately it's one of the people i help not a full dependent but i'm hearing the objectified conversations that this person's having with themselves, having an insecure attachment to life, but being a resilient person, she's almost like gaslighting herself around her problems. Like she's trying to minimize them. 
Or if it's something that she can't solve and can't minimize, she approaches them in a way where it's like trying to convince me (laughs) that this is a real problem. Which makes me really sad. And that's something I remember experiencing as a kid. Like no one will believe me if I tell them I'm having this problem. And so I'm seeing that in this person. And because she is very resilient, it doesn't look necessarily like someone who has less resiliency, who's like maybe in a sympathetic response goes into a fawn mode, like more dissociative. She's like hypervigilant. So it becomes like, I don't know. She could just like lead a corporate organization right now. <laughs> like she's just like on it. See that in her, just in yeah, the way she looks and her she stance. Does good. She's like, what's the timeline? I'm like, all right, <laughs> now, <laughs> guess right. right now. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, excellent. <laughs> Something I just keep finding myself say to her, it's like, you don't need to make an excuse about this. How you feel is how you feel. Like you're allowed to communicate how you feel right now. And you don't need to like convince me. You don't need to make an excuse. (laughs) Essentially what I'm saying, I'm not hearing resistance to you acting like you're a liar. Like I believe you. This kid is a manipulator (laughs) on one hand, but it's like a pure manipulation, right? Like this is a manipulation to get a need met. When I first started interacting with this child, there's like a level of manipulation that I see in most children. Like most children will try to manipulate a situation. It's part of brain development. It's not bad necessarily. It's only the adult's response to it that can reinforce it or, you know, create like an issue. So anyway, with this person, the manipulation never worked. If one type of manipulation doesn't work, it never comes up again. There's never a repeat scenario. And every time that I've been there's like been an attempted manipulation. It's really just about care. It's like trying to see, I think, how much I'm willing to do for this person. Like, do I actually care? And this is a person who has a belief around what care would look like for them, like if someone cared. And so it's sort of a fantasy at this point of what care would look like. I'm demonstrating care in the way that like I can care. Like I can only care in the way that I care. So I'm doing that and I'm trying to just show up consistently. And I feel like over the course of like five years, there's trust that has built up that my care does not look like her imagined care, (laughs) if that makes sense, but she's trusting my care. And so now we're having a dialogue around it, which is really great. And like our conversations are actually so wonderful. Like I just really admire this human. It's interesting to me though, because I know that she is labeled a manipulator as adults. Like how could we forget what it was like to be a kid? Like I did not forget. And maybe that's what like kept me intact. Maybe that's why I chose Wendy's. Like, I don't know. I did not forget what it was like to be a kid. I, and have someone be suspicious of your intentions. I mean, what are the odds that you actually have like a sociopathic child? It's like rare. I don't even know what causes that, but like we're treating children like they could be that, (laughs) like they have to walk this line and it just reinforces an insecure attachment. Like This week, simultaneously going through this really difficult experience with this child, I am also remodeling my kitchen. Luckily, (laughs) 
I have my kitchen remodel because I'm just stripping cabinets. It is like the meditation for me. I am just like, this is the most human thing I could be doing right now. Not the cabinet part, but just like a repetitive movement. This will get done. This will have an outcome. I know there will be an outcome here. What I don't know is the outcome with another human. I cannot predict the outcome over here. It's a variable. This is where I think as adults, our insecure attachment gets triggered. And then we're like trying to control the dependent because we're terrified for them. Like, I know that one wrong decision right now could just be it for this kid. Like one thing could just be the thing that just pushes her in this whole other direction. And I can't let that stop me. You know, I can't start controlling the situation. I, which is my personality is if something is uncomfortable, I want to control the fuck out of it. I just want to be like, put my fist on it and be like, no, (laughs) I'm in control. (laughs) I'm like, just strip your cabinets. Just keep going. (laughs) All you can control. So many negative narratives though, around children, the manipulation narrative, like the objectification narrative. If people who are authorities in your life randomly, like for example, school authority, they're authorities, like they're holding your life in the balance while you're on school property, right? Like their decisions for your life really can impact you. They don't even know your history and how can they? They're just adults that are burned out, (laughs) taking care of all these kids. It's like this most asinine situation is what are we doing? It's underfunded. Teachers are overburdened. How can you create a relationship with a kid the way that it's structured? This needs to change. Like, I don't, I don't know what the change would be, but this is like the most ridiculous social experiment that is happening. High school, (laughs) I'm like, I, how are we expecting these kids to like come out whole? I just don't know. And then you throw in TikTok on top of it and I'm just like, what is happening? So bad. (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah, my kid's not in high school. He's in elementary school, but like even the elementary school counselor is like, I get your kid out of here as soon as you can. You know, there's too much violence in this school. And I'm like, what the hell? Like, this is just our neighborhood school. We live in like a middle income neighborhood. I'm just like, where are they even supposed to go? (laughs) You know, and I realize not every place is like that, but like, I'm in a really average kind of normal. I'm average. I'm like ish average average. place. Yeah. Yeah. And this is what's happening. Like violence, drugs. And then what? You put them in private school and then there's like. Yeah. No, then there's other. That's like the personally like a weirder social experiment. Like. Yeah. For real. (laughs) Now I'm like back to the farmer idea. I guess Mm -hmm. we should all just like. Like, can I just get simple again? You know, seriously. Well, this week, I'm like, what the fuck, dude? All I want to do is hunt mushrooms like 10 months out of the year. That's like my fantasy is running. Maybe that's your capitalistic business. (laughs) Fucking bank bank on mushrooms. I actually love that idea for you. (laughs) I love that idea too. Although, trying to like really pursue that as like a money making option, you could die. People die every year. It's a violent trade. What I want is just a little piece of land 
right off of a little patch of woods that has a lot of mushrooms in it. I just want to, that's my fantasy. And I've been thinking, I was like, I'll just run away there with my dogs and a cat. I have a slightly paralyzed cat that would have to come along with. I love that. It's a great fantasy. I don't, which, okay, let's compare fantasies. My fantasy (laughs) to survive life back when I was an object was to become an object, to become this thing that all people would want. (laughs) My fantasy now is just to go be part of an ecosystem. (laughs) Like, how can I be a part of the ecosystem? I like it. I like the shift. I love yeah, this I like shift. the shift too. This is the movement. Fantasies. This is the movement of our whole podcast. You know, yeah. this is it. <laughs> out of objectification. Anything that you are outside of yourself judging yourself through someone else's eyes. Maybe you've never thought of it that way. Maybe you didn't think, oh, I'm judging myself based on other people's ideas of me. Because you're just so used to judging yourself. But if you are at all judging yourself, you are essentially outside of yourself, looking at yourself on the surface, making a judgment. If you come into yourself and you feel your feelings and you allow for your experience, I was talking to a friend the other day and we're kind of talking about rest actually, and just like how it's hard. And actually I have a number of people in my life that this is like conversation. It's just hard for them to like rest. It's hard for them to like switch gears going towards a meditative state. And part of that, I think, is because we've objectified meditation. Like we've objectified mm-hmm. rest in a weird way. Like it's this thing that has to be experienced in this certain way. Where honestly, I just felt like I meditated for like eight hours stripping cabinets in the last two days because that's where I place my focus. I place my focus on the movement and the breath and that's a meditation, right? And it was like a way for me to come down from the uncertainty that I was feeling around another person's life. It's like, okay, I'm just gonna do this thing right in front of me. To me, that's like a the most human experience like that is what meditation is it's not about like shooting into outer space through your third eye (laughs) it's not about turning off your mind it's impossible to turn off your mind even if you meditate and go towards stillness your mind is still talking can you ignore your mind can you ignore people can you ignore your own mind ignore it it's not gonna stop talking you don't have to listen to most of what it says we're really a high functioning society in terms of nervous system health, like hypervigilance, we are really pushed to our maximum. It is an overwhelming idea to switch gears. Notice when you do a movement that takes you away from your thoughts. Like, I think that's why a lot of people work out the way that they do is that is actually how they turn off their mind. I would say though, if that's your only way to turn off your mind, that's not the best for your nervous system health because you're using adrenaline typically to do it. Can you do something that does not require adrenaline to turn off your mind? And something performance. Yeah. Something I've talked to clients about in the past. And for me, this is helpful. It's like to become aware of moments that pull you into life. Like if you're a visual person, it could be a sunset. 
you know, if you love hummingbirds, I don't know, like something that you don't see often that like pulls you into life. Just be in awe of like life happening, like calm, peaceful, something that's like methodical. Those are the moments to incorporate daily if possible. Mm -hmm. And they're not a waste of time. It's actually so beneficial. The more space you give yourself in that rest and relaxation state, that parasympathetic, the more time your body has to like actually heal, like your immune system can improve, your sense of connection improves, your sense of stability improves, food tastes better, truly, sex would feel better. Everything's great. (laughs) Go parasympathetic. Right. Water tastes good. It's shocking to me how many people I know don't drink water. Just going to throw that out there. If anyone out here listening is like, I don't drink water. You need to drink water. You're 75% water. (laughs) You have to drink water. But I love the taste of water. I've met my grandma. I was like, water tastes disgusting. (laughs) Lived off Coca-Cola. Ew. Weirdly, she lived to be 90. I don't know how she well, yeah. She like humans. slowly lived yeah. off of vitamin D. She tanned year round. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> she did everything that would kill you. She just kept going. Yeah. But it's because she was happy and meditating all the time in all of her things. If you, right. she was totally not a good person, but she was like so self-absorbed in her own tanning rituals i really think that's like what kept her alive (laughs) yeah her her ritual her meditation was the tanning bed she literally tanned you around i kind of love that actually i know she's like whatever it takes she was just out in the sun all the time but that's meditation oh in the actual sun that's cool it's not even like no she was like in the sun she lived in oh cool i can yeah. yeah she lived in the rocky mountains but she set up an outside space with like metal sheeting <laughs> to like hold the heat and like sun. that's cool yeah. she, it, i she, dig that she was really an intense person <laughs> <laughs> sounds like it oh my god <laughs> that's actually really awesome <laughs> oh god it's your grandma i'm like oh man she, i know this is my legacy you know this is your legacy i yeah. really like that detail actually that feels like <laughs> a really healthy one actually <laughs> i don't know I know, like it's Her so own. quirky, weird, and like fucking awesome. I know she was honestly probably a huge influence on me because she. Yeah, right. This sounds like patriarchy. you, but like even though yeah. she was like Mormon, because the Mormon. This is like a funny side note. Mormons have like a belief that women just don't go to. So there's like three tiers of heaven. <laughs> it's like an MLM. Mormons love an MLM. So there's like three tiers of heaven. And you can only go to the tier your husband goes to. So you can be like fucking Mother Teresa and you should be able to be in the upper tier. But like, because your husband didn't go there, you're that the level. You don't just go to heaven. Women go to basically a waiting room and their husband has to call them over. My grandma was like, when he calls me, I'm not going to (laughs) go. I love in the that. waiting room for the rest of eternity. I she love that. Fuck. Yeah, she didn't like him. And yeah, married to yeah. him for all eternity. So she's like, I'm done. 
And uh, she's married to him for all eternity, even the afterlives and waiting room, uh, just the waiting room. <laughs> he's in the waiting room. She did not care. And I was like, for sure. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, maybe, that I hear me. that. Yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. That made you choose Wendy's. <laughs> <laughs> Grandma. <There's hope. laughs> if you ever find yourself in a parking lot with an option, do you go left or do you go to Wendy's? <laughs> <laughs> you choose the triple cheeseburger. Yeah.